The scripture reading for today comes from Ephesians 1, 18 through 2, 10. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in his trans in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the in incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Good morning. Uh, my name is Dan Carpenter. I'm your preacher today. If you're like my kids, you could tell because I was wearing a shirt with buttons on it and a sweater with no hood. My kids don't really say cute things like that. Uh, I feel like at the beginning of a sermon, you should always have like a cute anecdote about your young children, like your toddlers and stuff. My kids grew up, and so I feel like shorthanded. If they were going to talk about my sermon, they'd probably give me advice about how to like boost the subs on our podcast. Uh, and it wouldn't be good advice either because they're kids still. Uh, this morning, I want to talk about the good news. That's the title of the sermon, Good News. Uh, if you've been in church a while, you probably know that it's uh, interchangeable with the phrase gospel. The gospel is the good news. And that's what Jesus came to teach us, and that's what he told us to go and tell other people. It's the good news, the gospel. And so that's what I want to talk about today. It's December 1st, I believe. Yes. Uh, we're in the Advent season. Uh, we're preparing ourselves to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And so I want to talk about why did he come? What's the significance of his life, his death, his resurrection, uh, the basics. And I call it the basics, but I feel like um, I've had to relearn them. Like my definition of the gospel has been hamstrung or too small for too long. And I don't know why that is. I don't blame anyone who taught me. I've, maybe I had blinders on. Maybe I didn't want it to be too big to apply to too much of my life. Um, maybe I can just explain to you up front what I mean. If you'd asked me at some point in recent history, what's the gospel, I would have told you. Um, we are dead in our sins. Jesus died for our forgiveness. 
And he rose again so that we can live in eternity with him. It's true. The Bible definitely teaches us that. And I would have said that's what you need to share with people. That's what we need to tell others. That's what you need to believe in to be saved. But I mean, we've got the number of words in our book are so many. Just look at one of the Gospels. There are books called the Gospels. Um, one of them is the Gospel according to Matthew. So Matthew wrote what he thinks the Gospel is, and he tells the whole life of Jesus. He doesn't just talk about the three-day weekend that Jesus took in a grave. <laughs> so there's got to be more to the Gospel than just what happened on those three days, right? I mean, Jesus, when Jesus came, he said, I'm preaching the good news. He hadn't even died yet. How could he be preaching the good news if he hadn't died yet? Yeah, he was hinting at it and he was telling people that he was going to die, but there's more to it than that. It's bigger than that. And it's not like God had hidden his plan from everybody for thousands of years leading up to Jesus being there. God had one plan the whole time. He's got one plan that's going to continue into eternity. And so why am I only looking at such a small piece? Um, like I said, maybe it made me feel safer. Because in a way, I thought about, well, I believe in it, and so now I'm saved. And then I'll die, and I'll go to heaven, and I'll live there forever. And it doesn't really have to impact much in the interim if I don't want it to. There's ways that it could, and there's people who are pretty good at explaining how you could apply it. Tim Keller is good at this. He talks about applying the gospel to every area of your life. I'm not good at it. It sounds to me like you're supposed to figure out, you know, I'm having trouble on this test. Um, how can I apply Jesus dying on the cross to this test? And it is not straightforward. It often feels like you're trying to jam a square peg into a round hole. But the fact is, the good news is bigger than that. The good news is that Jesus is king, which doesn't always sound like good news either. Because if Jesus is king, then the good news is you get to submit to him every day for the rest of your life. At least this applies to every day now, but it's not that appealing. And if you don't believe me that this really is the good news, go all the way to the end of your Bible, Revelation 22. Uh, the, the end of Revelation 22, you've got the spirit and the bride say, come. They're really excited about what they've just been told is going to happen, and they want Jesus to come back so that it can happen. And the thing that was just described is that Jesus has come down and he is enthroned, and we are his servants. That's it. That's what they're excited about, being servants for eternity. I guess maybe this is more interesting than, like, singing for all eternity. I often thought when I was a little kid, like, we'd become angels, we'd be in a choir, and forever and ever we would sing Glory Hallelujah, which sounded pretty boring to me, because I never got solos when I was a kid. I pr There's probably not even solos in heaven. Um, at least not in the one I thought of when I was a kid. Don't worry, by the end of the sermon, there'll be solos in my heaven. <laughs> but anyway, that's where we're headed. Complete submission to Jesus. But I want to talk about that plan that I said God had the whole time. It's been consistent the whole time. Because what you also see in Revelation 22 is that, oh, 21 and 22, it's a new heaven and a new earth, and Eden has been restored. It's Genesis 1 all over again. And what it says about those servants, they're serving God, they're serving Jesus in the New Jerusalem, and it says they reign forever and ever, which is more appealing. <laughs> and so I want to look at what does that look like, what does that mean, and is, was it really there the whole time? So 
I had three points. I can't remember what they are, so we'll start at the beginning. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He did uh, water and land and the sun and the moon. He did the plants and the animals. And then at the end of it, he created Adam and then Eve. And he looked at it and he said it was all good. And so this is where we're going to see what God's plan is, right? Why did he do this? Well, first, we know that he, the Bible tells us repeatedly throughout the whole book that he does all these things for his own glory. But I've never used that word outside of church, and so I don't fully understand what it means. But in this context, it has to mean something like to give evidence of himself or to make himself more visible. We know God didn't change or become better when he created, and we know that when we give him glory, we're not changing him or making him better, but you can make him seen in a new way. You can, he can expose himself in a new way, not the best language in New York City in the 21st century. Um, manifest, he can manifest, that's a churchy word, he can manifest himself in a new way. And so in creation, he was showing us something of himself. He was showing us his goodness and his love. Um, he was showing us his creativity and his beauty and his appreciation of it. And he created people who could see it. So he made himself visible to these people in all these ways. He showed all of his characteristics to these people in all these ways. But it didn't stop there because then he told them, be my servants and reign. Those weren't his exact words, but he gives them instructions that look a lot like Revelation 22. He gives them authority over creation. They're in charge of the plants, the animals. They're going to plant things, because in the Garden of Eden, no one's planted yet, but they're going to start planting things. They're going to name all the animals, which sounds really fun, Um, and they're going to multiply, which is important because it sounds like the Garden of Eden is a confined space. So God created the whole earth, and then he created the Garden of Eden, and it has like a certain number of rivers and a certain number of trees, and it's a certain size, but Adam and Eve who have the ability to take care of the plants, take care of the animals, and make more of them, are going to reproduce people, and they're going to spread God's creation. It's going to get bigger and bigger. They're going to expand this kingdom that's good, that God created, and they're going to reign over it as servants of God. And we know that because God put some limits on what they could do. They can't eat from that tree over there. And we know he meant it because as soon as they did, he kicked them out of the garden. And I think this is where I get tripped up because it always seemed to me like this is when the plan changed. The plan was God was going to let humans have authority and power and dominion and reign over the garden. And then we screwed it up, so he kicked us out and he had to come up with a new plan. And the plan was, well, creation sucks now, so how can I get them out of here? How can I save them from this disaster that they've created? And we have thousands and thousands of years of him trying to figure out how they can earn their way off the earth. We have Jesus come, and he shows us the, uh, the blueprint for how to escape to heaven, to the angel choir. But I don't think that's what's happening. You just turn the page, depending on your Bible, it's one to four pages, to get to Noah. And at this point, the earth is so evil, God's ready to just destroy the whole thing, consistent with what I thought he was going to do. But he doesn't. He saves one family, and he saves a little bit of every animal, and he destroys everything else. It looks like what he's actually doing is just starting all over again. He said, no, I had a good plan. It got screwed up the first time. We're going to run it back. And that's what he says to Noah. 
They sit in the ark for 40 days. It dries up. They get out. And then he tells Noah, be fruitful. Multiply. The animals are for you. The plants are for you. It's just like Adam and Eve all over again. This family that served God is now going to multiply, and they are now going to be in charge of stewarding God's creation. They're going to spread this little nugget of goodness that's left all over the world. And obviously it doesn't work. And so maybe this is where God gives up on the plan, and he definitely doesn't have the same, he definitely doesn't follow that same blueprint again, because he promised Noah he'd never flood the world again. So you turn your Bible a few more pages, and he starts talking to Abraham, Abram at the time. But it's not clear exactly what he's going to do here because he can't shrink it back down to one family. He can't destroy all the evil. And so the plan's a little different, but the goal is the same. He says to Abram, if you obey me, if you follow me, I will be your God. And essentially the plan is, oh, and he tells him, be fruitful and multiply. You're going to be the father of a massive family that's going to fill the whole earth which, again, sounds a lot like Noah. Sounds a lot like Adam and Eve. And it sounds like what the plan is now is, if you follow me, if you're my servants, then I'll give you authority, and everyone else can see what it looks like. We'll have all these other people trying it their own way. Uh, Adam and Eve weren't willing to rely just on my wisdom. Noah and his family weren't willing to rely just on my wisdom. And no one else on earth seems to be willing to rely just on my wisdom. But if you will, then you can be my example. We'll have your family, which becomes uh, Israel. And you guys rely on me. And you can rule and reign over a part of creation. You can start redeeming it. You can start rebuilding paradise now. So everyone else can see what it looks like. And the plan was never just for God to build up a nation that he could save. It wasn't just Israel's going to get big. I'm going to take care of them. The plan was always that it was going to go to the whole world through this family. And eventually, I mean, God knew right from the beginning it wasn't going to be a smooth ride. He tells Abraham right away it's going to be hundreds of years from now and your family's going to be in slavery. I'll rescue them from that. So it's not like he thought, like Adam and Eve, we're going to get this right from day one. But he had a plan. So he saves them from slavery and he's been clever this time. So phase one of this plan was a covenant with Abraham. I'm going to take care of your family. You guys are going to treat me as your God, and I'm going to show the world what it looks like when you submit. Phase two comes 400 years later. The be fruitful multiply part is already done. There's millions of people in Israel now. That's who he's bringing up out of Egypt. And now he's going to teach millions of people what it looks like to follow him. He gives them an incredibly detailed blueprint. He gives them the Ten Commandments and then, what is it, like 617 other laws or something? A whole bunch of other laws. And it's not that he was telling them how to earn their way back. He was telling them, this is what it looks like. This is how you live with me. This is how you live in my kingdom. You're going to look totally different because remember, the plan is, I'm going to give you power. I'm going to let you reign. But... I'm also going to bring the rest of creation back through you. So, yes, you have to submit. And I'm going to give you authority because my plan is to redeem all of creation. I'm not going to scrap this. I'm going to save it. I don't think I need to recap the whole rest of the Old Testament for you. Suffice to say, uh, it kept going like that. People kept trusting other things. They kept getting sick and tired of submitting to God. And the main reason was 
They were in bondage to sin. They had been since Adam and Eve sinned in the first place. And humans didn't have the power to shrug this off on their own. No matter how good a blueprint God gave them, they were never going to be able to follow it because we couldn't work our way back to God. We couldn't break our own chains. And this is where Jesus comes in, right? Christmas is coming, so let's talk about Jesus. Maybe this is where the plan changes. Maybe the Old Testament, they misunderstood the whole time, and they did. But I don't think Jesus is coming to introduce a new goal or a new endgame. What he's doing is coming to make it work. He's the one that can make it happen. And so the same way that creation was a completely one-sided affair, saving creation is, again, going to be a completely one-sided affair. And that's what God showed us over the whole, you know, duration of the Old Testament, is that we were never going to be able to do it, so he had to. And so he sent his own son, God, to save us. But it's not just that God came, it's that God became a man. This was a fulfillment of the plan. God and man working together, a man in perfect submission to God, was going to be able to redeem creation. And that's what Jesus did. He tells us, I only do my Father's will. And he did. This is the same thing Adam and Eve are supposed to do and Noah and Abraham and David and Solomon and whoever else you want to read about in the Old Testament. Go and look because those stories show you what happens when you submit and what happens when you don't. And Jesus showed us what happens when you submit perfectly. This guy ruled. He served. His whole life was that of service. He never took the kind of earthly power people wanted him to take. He rode his donkey into Jerusalem and people were ready. Our Messiah is our king and Israel will be restored. Jesus wasn't that kind of king. He was a servant, like the people in Revelation 22, like Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. He completely submitted himself to the will of God. But he reigned. He had power over the wind. He had power over death. He had power over sickness. He had power over sin. And he broke all of the chains that held us in bondage when he died on that cross. It really is the essential fulcrum of the gospel. But he didn't break those chains of bondage so that the story could end and he could beam us up into the choir. He broke those chains of bondage so that we could follow in his footsteps. He tells his disciples, go tell people what I taught you and go do what I did. He cast out demons. He healed people. He rose, the de- he rose people from the dead. Raised? You get it. <laughs> he reigned over all creation in servanthood. And this is what his followers are supposed to do. Because just like Israel, not just like, in complete fulfillment of the promise to Israel... Jesus' followers were supposed to submit completely to God. And through that submission, they would reign over creation. And through that reigning, they would redeem creation and be salt and light. They would show truth to everyone else. And that's how God was going to bring it all back to himself. Like, that's us here today, right? If this is the gospel, that God is restoring everything back to himself that there's another Eden waiting for us, 
that if we submit fully, we can reign like Jesus did? That if we reign like Jesus did, we can be a part of redeeming creation? And if we start redeeming creation, we will see salvations, our friends and our neighbors and people around the world that we haven't met yet? Then this gospel really rules our everyday life. It's not a belief you adopt one day and then slip back into when you die. It's something that governs every moment of every day, every decision, every interaction. And it makes a lot more sense to me. Because, I mean, Logan's been preaching about freedom for months, right? There's freedom from addiction. Let's just stick with that one for a minute. If Jesus died just so I could be forgiven of my sins, what is this freedom from addiction thing? I guess it's sometimes Jesus does miracles out of the kindness of his heart, out of his mercy, and that when you die and go to heaven, you won't be addicted anymore. That's really good. But it doesn't look like that's what Jesus was doing or that's what he was empowering his disciples to do. We have authority over all creation to the extent that you're in submission to God, that you're relying solely on his wisdom and no one else's. Because just like in the Old Testament, to the extent you rely on anyone else's wisdom, he's going to let you see what that looks like too. The example is going to be set by those who submit to God and those who don't are going to set the example of what it looks like when you don't. Because he's trying to give everyone a taste of eternity. He's trying to help you acquire a taste for the thing that's supposed to motivate your faith and your behavior. If you don't understand what heaven looks like, what the new earth looks like, what the offer is when you get there, I don't know how that would change your daily behavior. And I do know that it hadn't changed mine. But if we have that power right now, in this world, if God can give us the power that as we serve him, we can reign, we can break chains, then yes, there's freedom from addiction. And it's so pointless if you're not living that to try and tell someone else that it's true. If there's no power in your life, why would someone with an addiction problem care that you read in a book somewhere that there is freedom from addiction? If you're not submitting to God, whatever you're doing is pointless. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that what you do in faith, that Jesus is king, that he is the ruler, what you do in faith to the good news will never be in vain. As you put creation back together again, God will preserve that. He will use that. But everything else you do is toil. It's garbage. Everything you don't do from faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And if you're not pleasing God, then whatever it is you create will be burned up. It will be destroyed. It won't survive. You're wasting your time, whether you see it now or not. It might feel good to finish a project, but you're just finishing the project and throwing it right into the fire. I forget where I was. Let's go back to addiction. I'm stuck on it. I have a... 
I got, led a pretty easy life myself. And so the trade-off between what I need to do here and what happens in heaven, it's never been that stressful. I mean, heaven's the good thing, and my life now is pretty good, and I don't feel too tempted to do too many evil things, and so I'll keep coming to church. But there's a lot of pain in this life, man. I only get little glimpses here and there, you know? Um, my grandfather passed away recently, and it's the best. He went the best way you can go. If my dad listens to this, I'm sorry if you disagree, because he was your father, I understand. But the guy was 96 years old. He was healthy, right up to 96 years old. And the thing that killed him... I mean, it started happening just a few weeks before he died. They had enough time. Someone's laughing. <laughs> they, my, my whole family had enough time to come back and sit with him. All his kids were there. He died peacefully in his sleep. And I thought I'd be fine with it. I didn't think I was going to be that sad. And my sister called. She had just seen him the last day he was alive. And she said to me, uh, it wasn't supposed to be like this. Death is wrong. Addiction is wrong. None of that was supposed to be in creation. None of that was part of God's plan. And he's going to burn it all up. And we can help. But only if you'll recognize that he's the king. And no one else is. When we do it his way, we can defeat that Anyway, I'm already running out of time, and I don't have much more to say. I just want you to get it. Uh, let me do one more thing. This is like big picture-y type stuff. Um, and so, just briefly, let me spend just like two minutes on like small-time application, what it's looked like for me. The past few weeks, Logan's been talking about uh, giving, and this is not part of the giving series, and you can tuck away your pledge cards during this part of the talking. Um, but he talked about giving 10%. That's a tithe. Um, it seems to be the Bible's instruction for obedience. But just like the Sermon on the Mount, just like the Ten Commandments, just like the rest of Jesus' teachings, he's not saying, this is how you live a slightly better life. He's not saying, this is how you earn favor with me. He's saying, this is an opportunity for you to submit to me. This is how you stay with me. This is how you show yourself that I'm your king and not someone else. This obedience steps you out of death into life. Wakes you up to the reality that Jesus is king right now. That heaven is here right now. That his kingdom has come. Through obedience... Through that service to God, you can start reigning. And that's good. Uh, and over the past few years, if I'm being honest, I've uh, moved up a little bit from the 10% because it seemed like that's what the pastors said to do. <laughs> Sorry, Logan. That other pastor's gone. I, I can make jokes about him now. <laughs> but the other thing that struck me is Jesus is king... And he's not king with like 
a set of rules that if you follow, you're in the kingdom and you get to rely on yourself for everything else. He's king of everything. He's king of 100%. And so, yes, give the 10% because he knows me better than I do. His wisdom is better than mine. And he knows that I need to do that to avoid giving in to all the other voices in my head. We talked about mammon and there's a million others. But... Part of the reason I gave more than 10%, a little bit, is because it made me feel like now the rest of it's mine, right? Now I've done the thing I had to do, and now the rest of it's mine. But the fact is, the 100% is God's. You need to submit the whole thing to him. And it's, for me, so much easier to just write a check to church and say, this is my submission, than it is to recognize that God wants you to submit all the stuff you do out there. He wants you to submit how you spend your money, where you invest your money, how you treat your coworkers and your employees, and even your boss. And it makes it a little scarier for me because I never really liked this thing that we preach here about uh, if you give to God, a lot of times he's going to give back to you in greater measure. It made me uncomfortable because to me it sounds like a get-rich-quick scheme. But the fact is, all he's doing is giving you more responsibility. He's increasing that section of creation over which you have dominion, you have power, over which you reign, over which you have to serve him. Anyway, so that's money. That's an application. Please do this with me. We can change the whole city, and we can't do it if we're intentionally neutering the gospel in every conversation. I can't be an evangelist because I can't walk up to a stranger and tell him, Jesus died for your sins, do you believe? Okay, I mean, it's kind of a stupid excuse, but also, okay. Because that's not what Jesus told us to do. Yes, tell them Jesus died for their sins and they should believe. But tell them about the power that Jesus gave you as you submitted to him. Show them the power that Jesus gave you when you submitted to him. Show them the power Jesus has now. We will bring redemption to creation through our words and through our deeds, just like Jesus did. We'll teach and we'll do. Last thing. Uh, It might be hard for you to relate to this Revelation 22 verse The spirit and the bride say, come. What's the hurry? This feels good, right? The quickest way to get there is to do what I've been talking about. Start submitting. Start reigning with God. Because once you see the difference between what he has to offer, between his goal, his reality, his plan, and yours, the pain gets huge fast. You get a lot more sensitive to the brokenness, to the chaos, to the wrong in this world. And when you get a taste, when you get a glimpse of what's on the other side, you'll start begging him to end it. Put the rest of your enemies under your feet. Come back and let's have no more of this nonsense. I hope we get there as a church. Father God, 
Thank you for sending your son. Thank you that he taught us how to pray. God, you didn't come and teach us to pray for a teleport to heaven. We pray for your kingdom to come. We want your kingdom to come in our lives so that your kingdom can come in this city so that creation can be made whole so that by your power there would be freedom from addiction healing for the sick care for the poor God, that we would see your victory over your enemies in our lifetime. We thank you that your son Jesus is here with us now. That our king hears us and that he pleads with us on our behalf. So it's in his name we pray. Amen.